All right, we are back. We're not finished with tech yet, so I want to note with a, with a bit of optimism here that the U.S. Senate has passed a bill that aims to combat the illegal robocalls currently torturing we Americans. Though the measure wouldn't eliminate all unwanted calls, it would give regulators more tools to go after scammers. It would also push phone companies to adopt new technology to combat fake numbers popping up on caller ID. The Senate passed the bill 97 to 1. No, we don't know who the one was. It's not clear what will happen in the House, where Democrats in charge have their own anti-robocall proposals. The bill apparently has support from the telecom industry and consumer groups, which is a rare combination. And we gave kudos last week, or was it the week before, to the San Francisco supervisor who banned an effort to limit facial recognition technology in San Francisco. As reported on this program many times, in China, the government uses pervasive surveillance to keep tabs on the Uyghurs, a persecuted Muslim minority, and singles them out by their appearance using facial recognition and tracks their comings and goings. We may not want this in America. Farad Manju, writing in the New York Times, said that when protests erupted in Baltimore in 2015, police there used facial recognition software to search the crowds for people with outstanding warrants and arrested them immediately. Obviously, this has a rather chilling implication for speech and assembly that is protected by the First Amendment. The Economist sounded off on this, noting that facial recognition technology imperils the space for disobedience built into any humane system of laws. The magazine asked, do you want to be fined every time you jaywalk or exceed the speed limit? Bear in mind how local governments' budgets depend on fines and fees, and that facial recognition cameras are a lot cheaper than a cop on every block. Of course, here's some bad news, as noted by Angela Chen in MIT Technology Review. That ordinance in San Francisco still won't stop private companies from creeping in on us. Most people's experience with facial recognition won't be because of law enforcement. Rather, it will be school security cameras or stores that show customers targeted ads. These uses come with the same risks of misidentification and discrimination, but regulating them is more complicated. Should people have the right to opt out? How difficult will that be? And what happens to the data? And if you're wondering what's the single best piece of advice for securing your personal data, Zach Whitaker, writing in TechCrunch.com and repeated in The Week, said there's a short answer. Turn on two-factor authentication. Sending a text message code or phone prompter in addition to a password in nearly every case prevents automated hacking attempts. Research released by Google showed that having a text message sent to your phone to confirm any suspicious login prevented 100% of automated bot attacks that use stolen lists of passwords and 96% of attempts to steal passwords. For cybersecurity experts, the simple precaution ranks as more important than using unique or strong passwords. Two-factor authentication did not prevent targeted attacks from professional hackers trying to breach your account. But just one in a million users faces targeted attacks. Speaking of lawsuits, as we were in the uh, last segment, it turns out that um, lawsuits are being filed and won by uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma sufferers claiming that uh, they, well, may have gotten their disease from their use of Roundup, causing quite a headache for Bayer, which purchased Monsanto, the the maker of Roundup. Looking at an ad from the newspaper right now, soliciting uh, you know you to contact the law firm, 
if you used Roundup and then later developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The piece notes that recent studies have shown repeated use of Roundup products can double or triple your risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. You know, but if you understand statistics, you understand a bit about medicine, a 2 or 3x increase in risk, pretty hard to uh, ascribe causation to that. We note that more science needs to be done, and no doubt more science will be done on, on this issue. Of course, meanwhile, I'm working out in my front yard and look over to observe one of my neighbors, or at least the idiot hired by one of my neighbors, out there spraying Roundup on everything. I stood near the property line as he advanced toward me with the sprayer. When he looked up and perhaps observing my body language, decided to go spray somewhere else. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. At this point, I think I want to give a, an attaboy to a, a fellow radio host, <laughs> which is sort of a funny thing for me to say. I'm referring to Harry Shearer, the producer of Le Show. Harry Shearer is a comedian, a voice actor, and best known to us as bassist Derek Smalls in Spinal Tap. We think that Le Show is, uh, is by and large a very credible effort worth listening to. On last week's program, he started out by saying, I don't know what to think. I just don't know what to think. The thing he was having trouble thinking about was the report, which apparently got released. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the details of this report. But it was a study of chemical weapons in Syria, I think conducted by the UN, that uh, had been hidden away. The report fell short of indicating that there had been a false flag operation over in Syria as regards to people being exposed to chemical weapons. But the investigators on scene were certainly skeptical over the fact that these canisters, which apparently did have chlorine in them, uh, had been dropped from airplanes. Harry Shearer was commenting upon Robert Fisk's work for The Guardian. Fisk is one of the world's foremost investigative journalists. He has been over in Syria. He speaks Arabic. And in his previous reporting wherein he had spoken with doctors uh, on the scene in Syria. Uh, well, let's just say he was doubtful about the official version that um, the Assad regime was gassing its own citizens. Now, you don't have to be a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist to realize that false flag operations do take place. If you're new to this program and have never heard us talk about Operation Northwoods, which we have on several occasions, your homework, dear listener, is to go look it up. Back in the early 60s, the Pentagon really and truly did have a plan afoot to destroy an airliner, killing the people on board, and then pinning the crime on the Castro regime in Cuba. I emphasize falsely accuse the Castro regime of the crime. That particular episode was not acted upon. But we're going to bet, we're going to bet looking at the various governments of the world uh, and private groups that uh, engage in military matters that um, we think such episodes have happened. Let's, let's leave it at that. Our understanding on this program is that uh, in, in the zeal of uh, probably say more than one administration to, uh, to reach out and do some regime changes, one of which was Syria, well, we'll just say that things don't always go well. In the case of Syria, our understanding is that uh, among the moderate groups, which were financed by our CIA and other interested parties, moderate groups set up to help 
topple the Assad regime included ISIS. Mr. Miller, we really ought to talk about Syria at some point in the program on the future and get some expert on here. Let's, uh, let's try and do that, shall we? All right, on a much happier note, a much more personal note, but by all means happy note, I, I would like to, to note that yours truly took the yoke of a Cessna 172 and did some flying around Sacramento and Yolo County last week. Flying airplanes is a wonderful thing. Many people are afraid of it, considering it uh, very dangerous. And I must pause to segue momentarily into uh, one of the shows I was listening to. I can't remember which one this was on NPR. They were talking about statistics, people's inability to properly gauge what a risk is to them. They noted that commercial flying is one of the safest activities a person can engage in. Yes, planes do crash, but I think they cited something like 10,000 planes in the air at a given moment. I think that might have been just in the United States. While tooling around in the air, I did, I did look down at Davis's University Airport. UC Davis is the only campus in the system which has an airport affiliated with it. Although, I used to say that, but I wonder now whether Merced, UC Merced can count Castle Air Force Base as a local airport. Anyway, for you UC Davis students listening in, I, I know there, there are many of you, um, I, I would like to plug the services available at University Airport. If you're interested in learning to fly, it's something you could take up there. Personally, I hope you do. And I hope that when you come in to land on runway 16, that you will disturb the people living in the housing, which used to be in an open field just west of Highway 113 which the university has decided this would be a great place to put student housing and lots of it. And they had a big open house and bragged about how high tech it was and how wonderful it was and how blah, blah, blah it was. But didn't mention the fact that it is on the flight path for the airport. My flight instructor, who I was uh, traipsing about with, laughed and said, well, it's only a matter of time before they complain and try to get rid of the airport because after all, these planes are flying right over our heads. Never mind that they've been flying in that pattern for the past, you know, number of generations. No, we just built some new housing here, and we just moved in, and we don't want airplanes overhead. This, alas, was a sad story of many airports, and I, I can vouch for the Sacramento region. I learned to fly at Natomas Airport, which no longer exists. The powers that be in Sacramento decided that building a big giant mall and shopping center just east of the airport would be a great idea, except that that meant that people were looking up from the parking lot and seeing airplanes landing. They didn't like that. They didn't want to have to worry about a, a plane crashing into their car while they were in there enjoying their Texas barbecue. So they complained a lot. And to make a long story short, the airport is now basically a housing development. I'm griping about this because I don't want to see this happen to Davis's University Airport. Put your student housing elsewhere, you morons. By the way, the opinion that it is moronic to put student housing in the flight path of an airport is my opinion alone. It does not necessarily represent that of the station, our sponsors, or the students taking a break from their video games to look out the window if, if they still do that and observe a Cessna heading in their direction. At any rate, speaking of crazy decisions, how's that for a segue? On numerous occasions over the years when uh, yours truly has been ranting or raving about something, on occasion, perhaps unreasonably, Mr. Millen has said to me, Okay, Queeg, Captain Queeg, as you may or may not know, we hope you do know, was the 
main player in Herman Woke's novel The Cane Mutiny, which won a 1951 Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it's best known to you probably, dear listener, uh, not from the novel, which sold more than 3 million copies, but from the acclaimed 1954 movie with Humphrey Bogart. Remember as a boy, my dad and some of his friends <laughs> remarking upon the character, the singular character of Humphrey Bogart's Quig, who had a nervous habit of rattling large ball bearings in his hand. I guess Quig's equivalent of the, the service dog. Anyway, because Quig was a bit nuts, getting nuttier <laughs> as the movie and novel unfold, well, uh, there, is a ca- there is a mutiny on board. He's relieved of command. If you've never seen it, I, I'd say uh, you should do so, dear listener. Strong backup performances by Van Johnson, Fred McMurray. Jose Ferrer is especially good. Anyway, the author who invented these, uh, these memorable characters, Herman Woke, passed away last week at the age of 104. Note of the week, Woke was happy to be known as America's greatest unfashionable novelist, while contemporaries like Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer received praise for works that questioned American traditions. It was Woke who topped the bestseller list again and again and again with page turners such as Marjorie Morningstar, 1955, and the World War II epic The Winds of War, 1971, which was later a hit TV miniseries. Woke's veneration of family, morality, and duty, he was an Orthodox Jew and also wrote books on Judaism, earned him scorn from reviewers. One reviewer fumed, he can compete with the worst of television. Woke was unperturbed by the criticism. Maybe it's because I don't see why a man can't write good books, he said in 1965, and be a sane man at the same time. I did not realize that Woke was born to Russian immigrant parents in New York City. And after graduating from Columbia University, he wrote jokes and sketches for the radio comedian Fred Allen. After Pearl Harbor, Woke served in the Pacific aboard a destroyer-slash-minesweeper, which apparently was a life-changing experience. Woke said, The shallow conceit of a successful gag man faded away. When I came back, I wanted to write novels. Back in 2012, after he published his 15th novel, The Lawgiver, he immediately began work on his next book, saying, at age 97, what am I going to do? Sit around and wait a year? You know, I was speaking a moment ago about, uh, about risk, and then the show that was taking a look at risks and how unreasonable people are about uh, risks. The author, whose name escapes me, described uh, interviewing someone who said, well, frankly, you know, he was afraid of flying. The man reportedly told him this while smoking a cigarette leaning on his motorcycle. They mentioned on the program specifically that something like a shark attack seems to generate headlines and people are afraid of going in the water and they're afraid of being attacked by a shark, but in reality, it's a very rare event. Unfortunately, not so rare as to have saved a Granite Bay man who was vacationing in Maui last week. He lost his leg to a shark and subsequently his life. Evidently, Granite Bay optometrist uh, Thomas Smiley was swimming near the Kanapali Shores Resort on Maui when he was attacked. He was about 60 yards out. It's especially disturbing for yours truly because I can recall many years ago swimming near the location of of this attack and and being struck by what a stunningly gorgeous scene it was to look down in clear Hawaiian water like 30 or 40 feet down to the rocks and then turn to your left and see Haleakala looming above you on land. It stuck in my mind then and now as one of those moments when life is, you know, all it could be and all it's supposed to be. But of course, luck does play a role in all of our lives, good luck and bad. I do find it ironic to note that the man who died in the attack 
was, in his private life, an avid race car driver. He raced at the Alameda County Fairgrounds in Pleasanton. In 2018, he won that year's Autocross West Coast Shootout with his 1965 Corvette Roadster. These are activities that were surely more dangerous than swimming 60 yards off the Maui coast. Anyway, I don't feel qualified to do the job that NPR did uh, in talking about risk assessment and, and, you know, trying to sharpen our judgment. But given the amount of time we've spent in recent years in this program talking about how social media has become a bit of a monster in, in influencing people, dovetailing with that, I want to pull out some old articles from like, well, 2011... 2016, 2011, 2012, stuff we talked about in the show years ago, I think we should just hit on again. New Scientist reviewed a book three years ago, which was not about, you know, social media or the internet. The book was titled The Persuaders, The Hidden Industry That Wants to Change Your Mind, written by James Garvey. But I guess if you think about it, since you and I are the product and our data is being sold by Facebook, Google, and others to people that want to sell us stuff... This is very much in keeping with what we think of as the PR industry. New scientists noted several years back, the chasm between people brandishing facts and the people without them, or with quote-unquote facts that are demonstrably wrong, is getting worse. They're saying this, mind you, before the era of Trump. But they asked, is it getting worse? I don't know, but let's ask those people rekindling interest in a flat earth. Evidently, in the introduction to this book, philosopher and author James Garvey describes the event that motivated him to write the book, a panic that seized him after he had bested a public speaker with a killer objection, and it had made no difference. The speaker had stuck to his views. Garvey writes that the idea that life turns largely on stuff other than reason menaces me more than a little. The magazine posts the question, so what does run the show? After centuries of the ancient Greeks forward worshipping reason and evidence after the debating clubs at the peak of the Enlightenment, we are now in a world filled with optional realities, the rules of change. Reason and argument are dead. Garvey, who evidently works at the Royal Institute of Philosophy, thinks he knows what killed them, public relations. Over the past 100 years, the PR industry has increasingly studied our psychology and identified the, clink, the chinks in our mental armor. Garvey cites the social psychology of pioneering neurosurgeon Wilfred Trotter, who found that our opinions are shaped not by reason and logic, but by our in-group allegiances, which I think has some bearing on social media, does it not? Seizing on such insights and everything else that came their way, this is before big data, the PR industry designed tools to override critical reasoning. They use things like emotional appeals, status anxiety, and so on. The piece notes that this started with simple advertising, but soon, realizing the extraordinary potential, the PR industry colonized every arena of modern life, from politics to science communication, until there was no more room for reasoned debate. He notes that these days, everyone has a PR company doing their wicked work, warping our realities to suit their agendas. The book plums the depths of the PR industry's uncritical reliance on pop psychology. To hear him tell it, civilization was bound to slide into unreason. Once the PR industry discovered our fundamental weaknesses, it wouldn't be long before those were exploited. To make this case, the book depends on thinking that has been in the ascendant since psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky introduced us to the dim view behavioral economists take of the human mind. 
From them, we learned about a host of cognitive biases that show our minds are infested with irrationality. These include confirmation bias, in which we favor evidence that backs up our existing beliefs, while more or less ignoring alternative possibilities, and availability bias that makes us back options we recall easily over a wider sample that we can't. The article asks, are we really at the mercy of such biases? And if so, how did we make it this far? Well, I think, <laughs> I think we need to keep asking this, uh, this question more and more as we look at the power of tech companies to reach out and touch us. The ability to have our political views shaped by careful massaging and manipulation of our psyches uh, was something that was written about by Chris Mooney. He wrote in the last word section of the week back in 2011 on this very topic, saying that since political beliefs are rooted in emotions, the facts are often irrelevant. We talked about this back in 2011, but we better do so again today. The piece cites Stanford University psychologist Leon Festinger. He conducted a study in the 1950s, a world-famous study, in psychology on a group of Chicago UFO devotees who thought they were communicating with extraterrestrials. On December 21st in 1954, the day the cult's leaders said the world would end in cataclysm, Festinger and his team were with these group of people called the Seekers. Festinger was waiting for this moment. How would people so emotionally invested in a belief system react now that they had been soundly refuted? Well, when the prophecy failed, the group struggled for an explanation. But then rationalization set in. A new message arrived from the aliens announcing that the Seekers had been spared at the last minute. Festinger summarized the extraterrestrial's new pronouncement. The little group, sitting all night long, had spread so much light that God had saved the world from destruction. From that day forward, the Seekers, previously shy of the press and indifferent toward evangelizing, began to proselytize. Their sense of urgency was enormous, wrote Festinger. The devastation of all they had believed had made them even more certain of their beliefs. Chris Mooney notes that since Festinger's day, an array of new discoveries in psychology and neuroscience and big data has further demonstrated how our pre-existing beliefs, far more than any new facts, skew our thoughts and color what we consider our most dispassionate and logical conclusions. This tendency toward motivated reasoning helps explain why we find groups still polarized over matters where the evidence seems so unequivocal. Note of the magazine, it seems that expecting people to be convinced by the facts flies in the face of, well, you know, the facts. I'm really disturbed by that line in the last piece about how we're influenced by our in-group allegiances which explains why, I think, the data, our personal data being shared with advertisers is so critical. When they realize the groups you're aligned with, then they know a lot about who you are. The piece notes that we're constantly reasoning, quote-unquote, but we may in fact be rationalizing our prior emotional commitments. They cite an analogy from the University of Virginia psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who said, we may think we're being scientists, but we're actually being lawyers. Our quote-unquote reasoning is a means to a predetermined end, winning our quote-unquote case. And it's shot through with biases. These include confirmation bias, in which we give greater heed to evidence and arguments that bolster our beliefs, and disconfirmation bias, in which we extend disproportionate energy trying to refute views and arguments that we find uncongenial. Plainly put, I don't want to believe that my spouse is being unfaithful or that my child's a bully. I can go to great lengths to explain away behavior that seems obvious to everyone else. 
Well, Mr. Ramon and I, I think, are trying to put some ideas out there that maybe influence people's thoughts in certain matters, and I guess this piece has some advice for us. They know that if you want to make someone accept new evidence, make sure to present it in a context that doesn't trigger a defensive emotional reaction. Paradoxically, the advice here is don't lead with the facts in order to convince. Lead with the values so as to give the facts a fighting chance. Well, I think that... Uh, we and everybody else who's interested in stopping, say, global warming need to pay attention to this, particularly given the New York Times report that, well, to quote from it, President Trump has rolled back environmental regulations, pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, brushed aside dire predictions about the effects of climate change, and turned the term global warming into a punchline rather than a prognosis. Now, after two years spent unraveling the policies of his predecessor, Trump and his political appointees are launching a new assault. In the next few months, the White House will complete the rollback of the most significant federal effort to curb greenhouse gas emissions initiated during the Obama administration. And in what the paper describes as what could be Trump's most consequential action yet, his administration will seek to undermine the very science on which climate change policy rests. The federal government will no longer fulfill what scientists say is one of the most urgent jobs of climate science studies, reporting on the future effects of a rapidly warming planet and presenting a picture of what the Earth could look like by the end of the century. The attack on science is underway throughout most of the government. In the most recent example, the White House appointed director of the U.S. Geological Survey, James Riley, a former astronaut and petroleum geologist, has ordered that scientific assessments produced by that office use only computer-generated climate models that project the impact of climate change through 2040 rather than through the end of the century, as had been done previously. Well, if the facts aren't going to matter here, we're going to have to use emotions to convince people who are, who are being convinced that um, global warming is some kind of hoax. If we're going to stop that, if we are to stop that, we're going to have to address, you know, where people are coming from. I guess we have to address the issue on this program of how far we want to try and go with mere facts and logic. David Brooks, the author of The Social Animal, suggests that when you put forth data, it should be a narrative that hits people not only on the rational level, but also on the emotional level. Well, noted. Also noted, we're out of time. This program was produced by the very rational Edward McMillan who is nevertheless an emotional mess. I'm just kidding. He's fine. We're both fine. But I certainly have enjoyed that feeling of ball bearings clicking around in my hand. Very comforting. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and hopefully we'll see you next week. We'll be here. We hope you are. Music.